Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Welcome to the very first episode of What If, where we explore untold stories and challenge the conventional narratives. I am your host, Boy. And I'm your host, Big Country. And today, we're going to deep dive into an alternative story surrounding the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995, a tragic event that shook the nation. That's right. Unraveling shadows, the alternative narrative of the OKC bombing. On April 19th, 1995, a truck bomb exploded outside the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City killing 168 people and injuring hundreds. Timothy McVeigh was convicted of the attack, but some believe there's more to the story. The official narrative points to Timothy McVeigh as the sole perpetrator, but some researchers, including us, argue that there may be hidden layers to the story involving government cover-ups and a John Doe number 2 who may still be at large. Timothy McVeigh was convicted as the primary perpetrator and was executed in 2001. Uh, Terry Nichols, another conspirator, was also convicted and is serving a life sentence. A Ryder rental truck was used in the Oklahoma City bombing on April 19, 1995, and was packed with approximately 4,800 pounds or 2,200 kilograms of ammonium, nitrate, fertilizer, diesel fuel, and other chemicals. The bomb, constructed by Timothy McVeigh, caused extensive damage to the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building and surrounding structures, resulting in the loss of 168 lives and numerous injuries. The force of the explosion was equivalent to that of 5,000 pounds of TNT and created a significant crater at the blast site. The Oklahoma City bombing remains one of the deadliest acts of domestic terrors in U.S. history. While initial reports and rumors suggest that multiple individuals were involved, the official investigation by the FBI and other law enforcement agencies conducted that McVeigh and Nichols were the main culprits. According to official reports, there's no credible evidence supporting a cover-up by the FBI regarding accomplices in the bombing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Hmm. (laughs) We've investigated ourselves and we've cleared ourselves of any wrongdoing. (laughs) (laughs) Conspiracy theories have persisted over the years, I wonder why, by the lack of substantial evidence and often they rely on misinformation or so we thought. Let's delve into some of the discrepancies and inconsistencies of the official account and where or were there any overlooked details that question the simplicity of the narrative? What are some of the anomalies that we found in the evidence of the investigation? And some of that evidence cast doubt on the official version. Let's get into it. So, right. The alternative narrative would suggest that the government may have played a role in the OKC bombing or at the very least covered up certain aspects. 
Now, the concept of John Doe number two was initially mentioned in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, but when witnesses and some media outlets reported the possible existence of a second suspect in addition to Timothy McVeigh. However, as the investigation progressed, authorities concluded that McVeigh and Terry Nichols were the primary individuals responsible for the bombing. The official narrative remains as such. The notion of John Doe number two eventually faded away as investigators failed to find credible evidence supporting the existence of a second suspect. Eyewitness accounts can be subjective, and in the chaotic aftermath of such an event, there can be confusion and misrepresentation of details. Hmm. Boy, let's roll the clip. Let's get to it. It was just hours after the bombing when the news channel first told you about the possibility that surveillance cameras may have captured the explosion and the killers on tape. Our sources and sources for the L.A. Times describe what's actually on those tapes. The information shows some huge surprises. The biggest, that it may have been John Doe number 2, not Timothy McVeigh, who detonated the bomb. Brad Edwards has the latest on the investigation in this exclusive News Channel report. Our new information comes directly from a source that has seen parts of those surveillance tapes. It also comes from reports now in the Los Angeles Times. But perhaps the biggest surprise is contained in the News Channel's own information. Timothy McVeigh was not the last person to leave the Ryder truck. In fact, another man sat inside the cab of the truck after McVeigh got out. We believe that man is John Doe number two, a man who, for all we know, is still on the loose, leaving open a vital question. Was it John Doe number two who actually set off the bomb, not Timothy McVeigh, as we've all been led to believe? News Channel 4 has for weeks been demanding copies of the surveillance tapes from the FBI. The federal government so far is dragging its feet. But many people in the investigation have seen the tapes, and now so has a source willing to describe to the News Channel what the tapes show. The L.A. Times report shows there was a surveillance camera near the corner of 5th and Harvey and another near the corner of 5th and Robinson. Federal investigators recreated the time sequence leading up to the bombing by matching the video and still photos from the surveillance cameras. Since we can't show you the tape ourselves, we're reenacting what our source says he saw on those tapes. As witnesses told the news channel before, the tapes show the Ryder truck parked in front of the Murrah building where we now know the blast went off. As witnesses also told us, the tapes show two men sitting inside the Ryder truck. A man strongly resembling Timothy McVeigh gets out of the driver's side, steps down. He then appears to have dropped something on the step up into the truck. He bends down and appears to pick something up off the step. Then he turns and walks directly across 5th Street toward the Journal Record building. All this time, John Doe number 2 is still inside the Ryder truck's cab sitting on the passenger side. Time passes. The surveillance tape is time-lapse photography. Without knowing exactly the time interval between shots, our source can't be sure how long John Doe number two sat in that cab. What was he doing all that time? Then the tape shows John Doe number two getting out of the passenger side of the Ryder truck. Again, the tape shows that a bombing witness accurately described what happened next to News Channel 4. I'm standing in the building, and uh, I was looked out window and I seen uh, a door of his truck and I seen a man 
The tape shows John Doe number two getting out, shutting the passenger side door. He steps toward the front of the truck and is momentarily out of the frame of the surveillance camera. But shortly, he appears back in frame, walking toward the rear of the truck, still on the sidewalk in front of the Murrah building. Again, he turns east toward the front of the truck, looking toward the street. John Doe number two then walks diagonally across Fifth Street toward the east, as if heading toward the YMCA or the intersection of Fifth and Robinson. He again leaves the frame of the camera. Another camera shooting from another angle clearly shows the actual explosion that destroyed the federal building and killed 169 people. The aftermath of the OKC bombing has left scars on the country, but for some, the questions still linger. What impact did the alternative narrative have on the public perception, and why do these questions persist? Could it be that the questions we and so many others have asked are out of the realm of being at the very least possible? We are simply asking, what if? That's right. That is right. This reminds me a lot of a familiar face that we've seen uh, given a witness testimony. Um, and some of the interesting things that led up to this case are also involved with, if you remember, a Mr. Barry Jennings. Mm -hmm. Inside the World Trade Center when that first plane went in, and of course the collapses since then, we're going to bring more of those to you now. Barry Jennings, you're on the eighth floor. You work for the city housing department. Explain to me the moment of impact. Well, me and Mr. Hesch, the Corporation Council, were on the 23rd floor. I told him we got to get, get out of here. We started walking down the stairs. We made it to the eighth floor. Big explosion. Blew us back into the eighth floor. And I turned to Hesch. I said, this is it. We're dead. We're not going to make it out of here. I took a fire extinguisher and I bust the window out. That's when this gentleman, this gentleman here heard my cries for help. This gentleman right here, and he said, kept saying, stand by, somebody's coming to get you. They, could, they couldn't get to us for an hour because they couldn't find us. You thought that was it? I thought, I thought we're dead. I thought that was it. I, I started praying to Allah. I said, that's it. We're gone. It's well, over. What was it like for you? You were inside there as well. It was pandemonium. I mean, it was something like out of a uh, Bruce Willis Die Hard movie. Uh, he was there, and he was crying, and there was another gentleman crying and, and yes. for help. Okay. We couldn't get to him. All right. Additional bombs. Some of his... Some have suggested that the additional unexploded bombs were found in the Murrah Federal Building, which could imply that there was more than one perpetrator. Uh, witness testimonies, certain witness testimonies have been cited to suggest that the presence of other individuals or suspicious activity, at the very least, around the time of the bombing. Surveillance tapes. Conspiracy theorists have pointed to surveillance footage that they that they claim shows individuals other than McVeigh near the scene. However, these interpretations are often speculative and not supported by the official narrative. <laughs> it's like we just watched it. Yeah, what are you about? <laughs> it's on video. That's always weird though, because you're like these conspiracy theorists. Is like, yeah, but it's because we saw it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. So All they weird. have to do is just release the videotapes. Kind of like 9-11. That's it. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a there's a Instagram page uh, that's like new clips daily, and it's of different views of the towers getting hit. Oh, yeah. Some of yeah. those are wild. Pretty crazy shit, dude. Wild. Right. Stay tuned for that, because that's going to yeah. be an episode. But back to the bombing. All right. FBI handling of evidence. Some critics have questioned the FBI's handling of evidence suggesting that certain information may have been withheld or mishandled. The official, the official investigation, however, found no credible evidence of cover-up. But part, part of the problem 
is when they do these investigations on themselves is more often than not, they find no evidence of a cover-up. So take that with a grain of salt. Absolutely. And, of course, we're going to link in the description of this episode of Being Being Number One, because these are such short, quick episodes that we do, linked more information, more videos, if you'd like to know more about this particular case, because uh, it goes so much deeper than just this. Um, Individuals who had seen things, individuals of uh, mistaken identity, people being Mm -hmm. killed for the quote-unquote... In in very strange ways. Yeah. Uh, of the of the John Doe number two. Moments later, McVeigh calls Millar's number at Elohim City in search of Andreas Strassmeyer. Although Millar's daughter-in-law later claims that the two men never connected, a few days later, witnesses claim to have seen McVeigh at Lady Godiva's, a Tulsa, Oklahoma strip club, in the company of a man with a dark complexion and another man with a German accent. Two weeks before the bombing, the staff there all recognized Strassmeyer with his buck teeth, his German accent. At one point, however, uh, McVeigh starts bragging about the bombing. And he tells the cocktail waitress, on April the 19th, 1995, you're never going to forget me. She comes out of, the, out of the restaurant into the changing rooms and tells the other girls about it. And that is caught on camera contemporaneously on a videotape. It's very powerful evidence. So here we have the cocktail waitress basically predicting the Oklahoma bombing, having just left a table where Strassmeyer and Tim McVeigh were all sitting together. According to reports, Strassmeyer later denies being at Lady Godiva's with Timothy McVeigh. As the cat fight was occurring, three men in the club were bragging to some of the strippers about how smart and rich they were and how they were going to be famous 11 days later. When Floyd and Julie realized what they had, they called the FBI. A couple of agents come to the club, talked to the girls involved, showed them pictures. The girls did, a, did identify uh, these guys that were in the club. McVeigh and uh, the other gentleman, Schlossmeyer, Strassmeyer, excuse me, um, they all did identify the gentleman. And of course, everyone's heard of McVeigh and nobody's heard of Strassmeyer. No, but the girls did identify Strassmeyer. The agents at that time says, we'll just, we don't know if it's going to go to court, we'll just kind of put it on the back burner and let it set. Well, that's where it's been. This is, what, five years later and it's still on the back burner. Because with Strassmeyer, I don't know if he's, uh, if it's a cover-up, trying to protect him. It seems like the more we find out, the less we want to know. John Peeler, the ex-ATF informant, has an even more startling theory as to why the ATF might have allowed the bomb to happen. McVeigh's ex-lawyers told us that John Peeler may appear eccentric, but he has an important story to tell. 
three weeks before the Oklahoma bombing, I call the Secret Service up and tell them, look, I'm talking to all these guys, and they're all telling me that Oklahoma, to watch it on TV, is going to be blown up on that time and day. And Richard Wayne Snell is going to watch it on TV, is what they're all saying. And I said, this don't sound good to me. One of the reasons that they let this building get blown up, they were about to do away with a hell of a lot of the budget of the ATF. But what happened? After the Oklahoma bombing, instead of being out of work and out of jobs, they hired three times more agents. And their budget just went out through the roof. They all knew it was going to happen. They didn't stop it. The New World Order wanted it to happen to show that terrorism is on the rise. They need more gun control, more federal agents. Mm-hmm. That didn't exist, but the FBI actually killed somebody because they thought they were John Doe number two. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, they would have to explain why they killed that person if there wasn't a John Doe number two that they said that they were never looking for in the first place. Right. <laughs> so. so if we just keep them out of the report, we don't have to say shit. <laughs> That's right. Smart. Smart. Wicked smart. <laughs> and as we wrap today's episode, it's crucial to acknowledge the pain and loss experienced by the victims and their families. Our exploration into alternative narratives is not meant to diminish, diminish their sufferings, but to encourage a deeper understanding of historical events. Remember to question, seek the truth, stay cautious, and remember to always ask, what if? That's right. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe Be sure to leave a a review. Be sure to share with your friends, your family. Buy your mom a subscription, Mm -hmm. your sister, Mm -hmm. your sister's friend. Or until next time, Mm. this is Boy. And I'm Big Country. Signing off from What If. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions.